Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group, the Wednesday, November 30th edition uh, here in 2016. Hard to imagine we are closing in on the end of the year of 2016. So, uh, boy, it's been a while since we've seen you guys. It's uh, Our last show was a couple of weeks ago. We took off the uh, Thanksgiving break, and, and when we left that show, we were just talking about how dull and boring the weather had been, and uh, that has changed over the past couple of weeks here in the uh, southeast of the United States. We've had wildfires uh, today and yesterday. We had a tornado outbreak, uh, severe thunderstorms, flooding taking place. So uh, it has been an active day or active uh, week here in the southeast with uh, severe storms and uh, that kind of uh, affected our areas uh, last night and then again today with the uh, tornadoes in, in South Carolina and uh, in the Atlanta metro area and possibility of even maybe uh, a tornado in the uh, Charlotte areas. Uh, we're uh, having some crews get out there and do some damage surveys. So it's been an active uh, period here for the past couple of days and looks like uh, we're starting to see the pattern change into uh, more of an active pat pattern of, of weather. So uh, we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. But again, uh, this is the Carolina Weather Group. For those who are joining, it's uh, 8.03. Michael Lowry, he's uh, with the uh, Weather Channel uh, Hurricane Expert. And Michael is currently, I'm going to look up the TV. He's not on there right now. Uh, he is currently finishing up the Wonderground uh, Show, Weather Underground Show there on the Weather Channel. And he'll be joining us shortly. So uh, before he comes on, we're going to kind of talk about what's been going on in uh, the various parts of uh, the southeast here. And uh with that, uh, oh, let me tell you, this is a live broadcast, so if you do want to interact with us tonight, uh, we do have Twitter and Facebook going. Uh, it's been a while since I've done this, so <laughs> I always forgot. So uh, I'm monitoring Twitter and our Facebook, so if you have any questions tonight for Michael as uh, we go throughout the show, please feel free to tweet them to us, and we will get those uh, answered for you. So now let's toss it over to uh, East Tennessee, where... Uh, Ricky Matthews is joining us, and Ricky's had to uh, deal with all sorts of weather over there. Uh, Ricky, I know Gallenberg's technically not in your market, but close enough in uh, some uh, sad stories coming out of that area. Yeah, it's been a busy couple of days. I worked the morning show on Monday, and uh, we had mentioned, of course, the gusty winds, what we expected, mountain wave wind events, or what we call them across our areas. What happens is you get a stable layer, and you get a, a jet that kind of goes in the mountains, and then the air gets forced back down. Uh, in the form of very gusty winds across the foothills of the mountains. And sometimes they can gust upwards of 80 or 90 miles per hour. Now, what happened Monday was we had a pretty favorable setup for fire weather conditions. You had dry air ahead of a cold front. You had a strong wind in the evening. And so all of that compiled together to create a very bad setup Monday night where the chimney top fire in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park actually accelerated quickly down from where it was and moved a good couple of miles actually uh sparking new fires as some power lines fell across the gatlingburg area and uh, of course most of us know what what happened there the latest numbers i heard earlier today was about seven people were killed uh, at least seven people killed and we've got uh, some crews down there doing some stories and reports but thankfully they uh had some rainfall move through overnight there. <laughs> they had a tornado warning issued at like two in the morning. Uh, I texted our crews down there and I was like, um, hey guys, just uh, let you know what's going on. But uh, yeah, they were all right and I don't think any damage reports came out of the Pigeon Forge or Sevierville area, so everything seems to be all right in terms of that. But nice little amount of rainfall, about an inch or so of rain um, 
in that area. Some areas here in the Tri-Cities got more than that. I think we're above two inches at the Tri-Cities Airport in terms of rainfall for today. And some other spots around Knoxville, they got upwards of four inches of rainfall. So we're starting to chip away slowly at that drought, but it's still going to be a while. Some parts of our area are still down uh, eight to nine inches or so in terms of uh, rainfall for this year. Yeah, it, it's and we've actually had some rain here in Western North Carolina with our fires up. Uh, that's really helped put out the uh, not put them out, but kind of get them contained and under control. So, uh, the Party Rock fire is 100% contained. Clear Creek fire in McDowell County is around 90%, and the Chestnut Knob uh, fire in the South Mountain State Park is at 90% as well. So, uh, we picked up a little bit over an inch here. So much needed. I have to think, Scotty. I mean, even though technically these burn bans are still in effect and we're still in a, in a drought, the fire weather conditions don't seem as favorable as they have been coming up. I mean, we're going to have what looks to be at least two more instances of rain perhaps moving across North Carolina and Tennessee. So I think our fire danger, thankfully, is starting to quickly go downhill. You know, we are getting out of fire season, uh, as you and Chris well know, our fire season typically October, November, and then once again in the spring across Tennessee and North Carolina. So we're hopefully winding it down and uh, soon talking about snowflakes instead. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd much rather talk about snowflakes than wildfires. Um, kind of a more enjoyable uh, experience than um, watching the devastation of fires. So uh, we'll definitely watch that and uh, had some rain. So let's uh, toss it down to uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And Shay, what's the weather been like down there? Has it been as active as it has been here in the uh, Carolinas or in, in Carolina and uh, East Tennessee? No, not quite. We, we've stayed fairly dry the last couple of weeks, uh, in fact, for, a, for quite some time. And uh, we got a little bit of rain yesterday morning, a few passing showers early on, and then it kind of sort of cleared out. Uh, but, it, Ricky, you were bringing up stable air. Uh, that's been kind of the case here with our cooler shelf waters being around 62 degrees. With southerly flow in off the ocean, it tends to stabilize the coastline. Uh, just inland about 10 to 20 miles, you, we saw winds gusting up to 35 miles an hour yesterday and even up to about 30 miles per hour today. And, um, but it, it, right along the immediate coastline is where you see this decoupling and this marine layering along the coast. So we had fog, actual fog, uh, along the immediate beaches and just inland a couple hundred yards, as it, small of a line as that is, uh, it does happen where our barrier islands, once you get right inside the coastal break, the wind turns on. Um, where you have those upwind land masses. And, and so a lot of the uh, water sportsmen and, and mariners today were, um, you know, having to deal with some of that inside the harbor. But out in the ocean, it's pretty foggy and stable. Uh, but we have a line of showers coming in in the next couple of hours or so. I think uh, sometime between 10 and 1 p.m. or sorry, 10 p.m. and 1 a.m., we're going to start seeing some of those showers through our area. Whether or not we get thunderstorms has yet to be determined, but with a strong onshore flow off the ocean, you never know. Um, but as far as uh, droughts concerned, we were in the D0 drought, which is the, the mildest form of drought you can be. And I'm not sure if we're out of that yet. Um, if anyone's checked the drought monitor for today, I'm not sure if they did an update or not. We may be out as of the rains from yesterday morning. If we get some more tonight, I'm sure that we'll uh, get out of that drought zone as far as the southeast is concerned. So much needed rain for some areas, but we're still waiting on a little bit more here in Charleston. All right. Yeah, and I think the drought uh, probably will be issued tomorrow. I think they did a uh, day early last week because of the Thanksgiving holidays. So uh, we'll watch that. And uh, let's go up to the uh, Jersey area where Peter's at. 
Uh, Peter, you said it's not been, before our show, we always do a little talk and stuff like that, so it's not been as active up there, just kind of cold and rainy, huh? Yeah, it's been a little rainy and cloudy here the last couple of days. Uh, it's been miserable, actually, but the good thing is uh, the temperatures haven't been too bad. We've been in the 60s uh, today and yesterday, so it hasn't been that cold, chilly, rotten rain, but uh, to recap, since I haven't been on here a couple of weeks, I did get my first flakes of the season. Uh, I had a little sleet and snow mix, which everybody knows I'm not very happy about, but I deal with it. And uh, since then, we haven't had anything too wintry uh, since then, so it's been all good. But uh, next couple of days, we're going to be cooling down to the 40s and 50s, a little more normal for this time of year. And uh, we may get some storms tonight, actually, overnight. So I only have class till 11 o'clock tomorrow, so if Mother Nature wants to wake me up, go right ahead. I don't care. I got all day to sleep. So, um, but it's kind of crazy, uh, talking about thunderstorms up here this time of year, late at night, uh, doesn't usually happen. If anything, it'd be daytime, but we may get our fair share tonight. A little squall line may come through. So we'll see how that goes, but, uh, we're in a marginal risk. Gusty winds, the main threat. So we'll see how it goes, but, uh, whatever happens, happens. That's it. And, um, we were uh, just got a question here on Twitter. I'm kind of doing a couple things here. Uh, watching our uh, partner, uh, Brad Panovich, looks like he has found some tornado damage in the Still Creek community of uh, Charlotte, uh, the Microsoft building, uh, as well being reported with some damage there on the uh, NWS chat. So, uh, Ricky, I think you shared some. So if you want to talk about that, I'm going to see if I can find out what Brad's up to and maybe give a report about uh, the damage. Uh, there in the Charlotte area as we wait for uh, Michael Lowry. Here, let me see if I can pull that video up. This is uh, some footage I just saw come across Twitter here. Hang on one second, and we'll get it all set up here for you. Let's do a screen share. Uh, all right, let me know if slash when you guys can see this. Yep, we got it. All right, so we're going to play this through. This is a video that's coming from portions of South Charlotte. And you'll notice you hear the sound first. But right about now, you see the wind really hit the area. Wow. Man. First off, That's... shocking that that uh, <laughs> wow, that stayed on there. The uh, the swing. So props to that swing for staying on That's there. That's a well-made swing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that looks like that came from. Let me find the exact area. Uh, that was from the Simpsonville Piedmont area. So that's actually, I think, South Carolina, Charlotte, uh, South Carolina. Um, yeah, it, was from. There was a confirmed tornado down there. Um, I'm not sure GSP will go out and do the uh, storm survey tomorrow. I'd assume uh, since it's closing or it was closing in on on um, sunset. So, uh, but yeah, uh, numerous. Uh, this is just the uh, LSR from the Simpsonville tornado. Uh, numerous trees and power lines snapped at intersection of East Georgia Road and Lee Vaughn Road, and then that video perfect there. I'm watching uh, Brad Panovich um, here on Facebook Live. He and uh, meteorologist Sarah Fortner and John Windor are out at the Still Creek area, uh, and they're reporting um, some tornado damage, uh, potential tornado damage there. So uh, these are some pretty feisty thunderstorms, and uh, 
guys, we've seen that actually these storms kicked off, and maybe when Michael comes on before we go in the hurricane uh, talk, we can talk about the tornadoes even in uh, downtown Atlanta. Yeah, and those storms that moved through Atlanta – uh, indirectly were, were almost the same storms that ended up heading into the Charlotte area. If you watch the progression of that, it went basically from Atlanta, the whole line progressed north and east, but these little embedded mesovortices in the line, uh, the QLCS kind of style tornadoes. And when they were moving through Charlotte, we had, it looked like at one time, three different little circulations ongoing. I know there were at least two at one time uh, down in York and Chester counties. The York County one, that one was interesting because that one had a pretty nice uh, what we call tornado debris signature, or TDS on it, where it was indicating uh, some leaves or trees or some type of branch or, or perhaps larger objects being lofted up in the air. And uh, with as large as the TDS was, you have to think that it's probably being enhanced a little bit by all the leaves on the ground. But uh, it's been a long time since we've seen a TDS like that across our area. Yeah, and Ricky, that's something I was want to talk to you about. You were um, nailing it there on Twitter. Uh, we're still in the fall season. A lot of trees still in the Charlotte area. Atlanta still have leaves uh, on the trees, and we could really tell that with the the dual pole uh, uh, radar, uh, with the uh, the CC values there, really kind of showing up uh, as the storms move through uh, certain locations. I think that video that we just showed kind of showed that perfectly too. I mean, you saw the leaves there on the ground. Imagine all those being picked up by the storms as they moved across the area. Yes. Now, when the, when the storm moved into Charlotte, the TDS kind of went away there. It was a little harder to see where the TDS was. I think there was like a minor one, but it was very hard to see. And the tornado that perhaps went through South Charlotte, that was actually a new circulation. The one in York, uh, that one went down into more of about, I guess it's Union County, kind of the Mecklenburg-Union County line. And then when you looked at the terminal Doppler, a new f circulation formed in southwest Charlotte, just kind of south and west of the airport. Basically, if you know where the uh, outlets are in uh, right along 485, it was basically right down in that area where it seemed like the rotation formed. Uh, Brad has got some damage from Westinghouse and South Tryon. And then as the storm kind of progressed north and east, it moved over basically the Woodlawn area, um, some of the industrial areas down there in Charlotte, just south of there. Um, what else is down there? Trying to think. Uh, South Park Mall is not far from there. South Park, um, I think it may be a little bit further south than where this was. Carowinds, yeah. it was north of Carowinds. It was kind of between the Woodlawn exit and where 485 uh, split when you go down to 77. That was the other interesting thing. There was a lot of traffic on 77 tonight. So it's a good thing we didn't have a, a stronger tornado than we perhaps did. Still hasn't been confirmed as a tornado, but uh, I think it likely will go down as that. Now, when it got onto the east side of Charlotte, I don't know if you guys were watching the terminal Doppler completely, but it looked like the storm started to surge out. We had like an RFD surge come out of it. And so I, it wouldn't shock me if we had a brief little spin up on maybe like southwest Charlotte, maybe all the way up to 77 or so. But after that, it looked like the RFD surge kind of took over and the rotation really went away. But we had the, the strong gusty straight line winds perhaps. So maybe a combination of both going into the storms that we saw across the area. I want to see if we can still pull up that data. I don't know if we're still going to be able to get data on the 88, but we'll try to pull it up. While you do that, I'm going to share this screen right here. This is uh, from the SPC. This is a uh, tornado reports yesterday uh, through uh, 1130-12Z. So uh, this is uh, 32 tornadoes, 97 wind reports, 36 um, hail reports. 
And then this is today, and this is not – I don't think this will include any of the South Carolina tornadoes or the potentially uh, any tornadoes here in the Charlotte metro area, but um, 11 tornadoes, 48 wind reports, and no hail reports. And, uh, you know, Ricky, you and Shay and I were, were discussing this before we came on came on the air tonight is uh, it's kind of been a very dull, boring time of weather here in the Southeast. Ever since Matthew passed by, you know, there's not been much to talk about. And then all of a sudden, you know, all heck breaks loose over this past week. And that's yeah. how droughts always break is big events like this. When it rains, it pours. Yeah, that's right. There's um, a lot of it's been weather has just sort of been hung up to the North. And now that we've got some movement of the, of the polar cap, the polar vortex sort of coming around the globe and then dipping down over Alaska, getting that back to some normal temperatures and normal climate up that way. Now it, all this, the wet pattern uh, swoops down into the United States. And we also have the subtropical jet joining with the uh, Eastern Pacific and helping to get that connection over to the Gulf of Mexico. So the fronts that come down actually are able to get enough moisture from the Pacific aloft. And then by the time they make it over to the Gulf, they're able to actually pick up that moisture as well. So that's what's been helping to get the rain pattern back into place over the eastern part of the United States. And, so. and uh, I'm tweeting some stuff out here. Uh, another thing, Ricky talked about it a little bit earlier, uh, more rain in the pitcher uh, for the southeast. And this time it could be a potentially cold rain. Uh, and then next week, Ricky, you were talking about uh, we make it even could see some uh, snowflakes fly up in the uh, Tennessee and North Carolina mountains. Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked uh, sometime next week if we get some snowflakes, even Sunday. Sunday looks interesting, maybe starting as a little bit of a wintry mix or some snowflakes in the uh, North Carolina, Tennessee high country, just because of so much cold air kind of being stuck in there before the rain moves in. Um, you know, so Rome Mountain, white top areas like that can see a little bit of snow, but then it all likely changes to rain uh, and washes away anything that fell. Uh, and then the other system that I was watching is going into Thursday, um, decent model support, but the Euro and GFS showing potential for a little bit of perhaps some snow moving into Kentucky and Tennessee and stuff like that as we go into uh, the late portion of next week. So it's something to watch. And, you know, it's, it's still pretty far out there in terms of if we're going to get to it. You know, it's eight days away for crying out loud. Um, but it's worth watching just because of the amount of model support and uh, this far out into time and the run to run consistency. That was the thing I was looking at the GFS. The low placement is completely off run for run. Like it'll be halfway in Canada and then suddenly down the Ohio Valley, but the cold air is there. So you've got at least the cold air around and then it just depends on where the moisture sets up. So you got to phase the two streams together to get a nice little storm. Um, this is also the time we start to look for clipper storms too and start to see if we can get any Alberta clippers roaring on down into our area. And sometimes those can give us a nice one to three inches, especially up in the higher elevations towards Rome, Mountain, White Top, uh, Damascus. you got portions of Carter, Johnson County, uh, and Eastern Tennessee. We're towards Mountain City, Shady Valley, all those areas. It can sometimes get a nice little dusting of snow, to sometimes more than that, depending on just how strong that clipper is as it moves down the, uh, into our area. And I think I can speak for both of us. I think we're ready for a little bit of snow. <laughs> I think I'm ready for a little bit, but ask me that again come about January, and uh, I'll probably have a different answer. <laughs> Rick, you guys had a running bet at your weather station. What is the earliest date uh, someone suggested? Is it December yes. 6th, 18th or 16th? 
Yeah, let me see if I can't pull that graphic up. We uh, we did this last year, and it was really fun to do. I'm going to have to scroll back. Pretty significant difference. To, uh, pretty significant time to find. It's been a busy day on my uh, work Twitter. But we uh, we started this contest last year. Just this is a friendly competition at work. And so what we do is we have our meteorologist, our anchors, and our sports department guess when the first one inch of snow will fall at the Tri-Cities Airport. So let me share the screen with you here. I've got it uh, up on TweetDeck. So this is the graphic. Um, we have four meteorologists on our team. David Boy is our weekday morning meteorologist, and he picked December 16th as when the first one inch will fall at the Tri-Cities Airport. That's the important thing. It has to be at the airport. Uh, can't be in the higher elevations. Can't be, you know, Wise County, where they're two or 3,000 feet higher than the Tri-Cities. Because they sometimes get snow before we do at the airport. And it has to be one inch. Not just the first flakes, not just the first tenth, stuff like that. Uh, but Boyd has the 16th. I have the 18th. Uh, former co-anchor of mine, Christy, she has the 19th. And then we've got uh, some other of our anchors picking times late December. Heather from our sports department who actually won last year uh, with a January pick. She is going with December 26th this year. Uh, our chief meteorologist, Dave Dirks, has been here 31 years. Uh, actually, maybe I'm with Dave. Coming up. Uh, December 29th is his guess. And then Chris Michaels, who we've had on here before, he's going with January 5th. PJ, uh, interesting story here. Last year, PJ picked November 13th. That didn't work out too well for him as we didn't have our first inch of snow until January. I don't think we had any flakes at all until sometime in December. Um, so this year, he's gone a little bit outside the norm and has gone with February 5th instead. He likes those extremes for some reason. Um, so it, the winner, I don't have it with me, but they uh, get to sign our golden snow shovel, which is $18 on Amazon. If you want to go buy yourself one, they're kind of nice. Um, and we're going to have that as a trophy sitting around CYB for years to come, uh, whoever wins was, this year. I was going to say, now, PJ, he, he was the last to pick, right? It, it took him a while to determine which day he wanted. Yeah, PJ about forfeited. Um, when I first put the graphic on air, I put a giant question mark under his name because he had yet to give me a date. And so uh, we went with, I don't know, sometime. Uh, but he's finally come up with February 5th. And Casey's got February 3rd, which is still kind of extreme to me. January's a pretty good guess. Our average, in case you're curious, is actually December 25th, uh, Christmas Day, is when we, on average, see our first one inch of snow. Of course, you know, that, that varies because sometimes you get early snowstorms. We've had snowstorms as early as Halloween. We've had snowstorms as late as January and February. So that average is kind of smack dab in between there. Um, and so, you know, it, it's thrown off. It's just kind of ironic. It happens to be Christmas Day. So. All right, Ricky. Well, we'll put, I'll, I'll bid $1. We'll go with before December the 16th. I'm going to go out on a limb. Well, you know, that's what I was saying. I was looking at it earlier, and last year I think I picked the ninth, um, or maybe I picked the exact same date. I don't remember. It was one of the two. I had to go back and check. Um, but if we get that snow next week, not saying it'll be an inch, not, uh, but you could potentially have uh, an earlier guess, and then we all could be wrong. I guess Boyd would win by uh, default for $1. So. <laughs> It's close competition, though. You get into 16th, 18th, 19th, 21st. Uh, all four of us have, like, pretty tight competition in between there. I'm watching uh, Brad's. Uh, I was like, Scotty, we can hear that coming through. What do you got going on there? 
I'm watching Brad's live feed right here. He's showing some uh, trees that have been topped off at the top of the trees. So kind of another kind of another hint that we could have seen a, a potential tornado there in the South Charlotte area. Wow. Well, just a reminder to our viewers, we're waiting on Michael Lowry to join us for uh, hurricane season 2016 discussion as we wrap it up. Today is the last day of the hurricane season, and it will not pick back up until June the 1st of next year. Um, so that goes for the Atlantic Basin and the eastern and northern central, I'm sorry, central and eastern North Pacific as well. They both end on the same day, but they start theirs on May the 15th, a couple of weeks earlier. So um, earlier this year, we had Alex that started uh, started off the year, early January, and uh, we've had kind of a strange year, and we'll, we'll have Michael on to talk about that here momentarily. And um, Scotty, you got anything else for what's just, going on? Uh, just looking through Twitter and watching this video, more uh, reports, uh, the Westinghouse area of Charlotte um, topped off trees. I just tweeted it out on our uh, Carolina Weather Group Twitter page. So if you're watching tonight and waiting for Michael to come in, you can take a look at these photos. These are from Sarah Fortner, who is uh, there at WCNC with Brad Panovich. Um, I'm telling you, uh, some pretty significant damage there in the South Charlotte area. So um, we'll definitely have to wait for uh, the National Weather Service out of Greenville-Spartanburg to do their damage assessment. But uh, from looking at the pictures right now, I uh, would not be surprised that uh, they do rule this a tornado. And Ricky, um, I can't remember. I, I don't I think it was two years ago mm -hmm. uh, when we had the tornado that came through Charlotte. It's like 7 a.m. in the morning. I believe this was kind of in the same area as that last one. It was. In fact, that Microsoft office, the, someone was tweeting that uh, they think it got damaged last time the storms moved yeah. in. Uh, and that tornado, I, I had to take a look back. I think that was 2014. Is when that so. storm hit. Uh, I couldn't find an exact date. Um, maybe we could try. No, it was out, it was real early. It was like seven a.m. in the morning. I mean, it was kind of an, an yeah, odd it, time. It was a really unusual storm that kind of moved through in the early morning hours. Nice little rotational signature once again is when the terminal Doppler came in handy. And that was the amazing thing today. You know, the radar beam from GSP hit storms six, seven, eight thousand feet. We've discussed on this show before. But the terminal Doppler came in clutch once again this afternoon uh, with some great velocity signatures. I'm telling you, the terminal has done a great job uh, there in Charlotte picking up the rotations. Because like you said, the radar from GSP, I can't remember. It's like, what is it, six or 7,000 feet it looks up into the cloud base from, from the, the angle there in GSP? Uh, I want to say it's about that, yeah. I think it's close to that. So, I think we have Michael with us. We'll see if uh, he can hear us. Hey guys, yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? We got you. Yes, sir. How are you tonight? I'm great. How are y'all? Apologize for my tardiness, but I'm glad to be here. That's okay. We're we're glad to have you. We're excited about uh, hurricanes. I'm gonna let Ricky do uh, the hurricane stuff, but I do want to talk to you about. Uh, we've been talking about the severe weather that's affected the southeast today. Uh, possible tornado in Charlotte. Uh, tornadoes in the Greenville, South yeah. Carolina area. You guys there in Atlanta had your uh, fair share of that. Uh, as well earlier today. Yeah, no, we sure did. Uh, it, actually, the uh, tornado that we that we had come through this area moved, uh, or at least the, the tornado signature uh, moved uh, very close, just about just to the south of the Weather Channel studios, uh, just north of where I live. Um, but yeah, yeah, a little uh, eventful afternoon here at the Weather Channel. But 
Um, you know, we all did okay, but obviously spreading your way tonight. Yes, it's it's been active. We were joking. Uh, it's been such a boring and kind of a low in weather activity here in the southeast, and uh, it's really changed the past couple of days. <laughs> and then we may in Atlanta, we may end up getting all of our uh, making up for our drought here in the next uh, two weeks with uh, it looks like wave after wave of rain coming through. Definitely. Well, Ricky, I'll uh, toss it to you and Shay, and uh, we'll, we'll get started about uh, talking about hurricanes. All right, from severe weather to hurricanes, a nice little transition there. You know, today is the uh, official into the Atlantic hurricane season. It's been a crazy busy year, kind of the busiest year we've had in, in several years. Michael, you know that better than anyone else. As we start off tonight, kind of talk about really some of the factors that went into this season and why it was just the abnormal season that it was. Well, I mean, really, uh, most things were working in favor of, of storm development this year. You know, going into the hurricane season, there were a lot of question marks in terms of, um, first of all, La Nina. Uh, that's always El Nino, La Nina. That's always the, the big driving factors. Okay, we're going to have an El Nino, we're going to have a La Nina. It looked like we were going to go into a La Nina at some point during the hurricane season. We weren't sure when, if it was going to happen uh, you know, early or if it wasn't going to happen until later on in the season. Uh, and then there was the whole discussion about the AMO, the Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation, and whether or not uh, we might be going into just a less active period of, of hurricane activity. Uh, the Atlantic wasn't going into the season like in May. It wasn't, it was, it wasn't that it was that cool, um, but the ocean models were forecasting for the Atlantic, the tropical Atlantic, to be pretty cool. Uh, which might signal uh, us continuing to go into this maybe less active uh, period. But as it turned out, the Atlantic was on fire this year. I mean, we had uh, record warmth in the Gulf of Mexico. The Caribbean was the third warmest on record. Even the MDR, the main development part of the Atlantic, was the seventh warmest on record. So the water temperatures were really warm. But I mean, in any given year, you have enough warmth in the Atlantic to get hurricanes. One of the big things this year was the shear. The shear was so much less in and across the Atlantic, across all regions of the Atlantic. The Gulf saw the lowest wind shear since 2004, uh, and the Caribbean since 2010. Uh, so the the wind shear was was just uh, was pretty light this year overall, and uh, and I think the combination of those two things, uh, especially later into the season, we had a, we had an MJO event. Uh, move into the Atlantic for October. And a lot of people sort of forget about October. I was just talking to my manager yesterday about this. I said, you know, uh, I'm not ever going to even try to tr take vacation in October because inevitably like there's some sort of big October hurricane that comes, that comes along. We see it Sandy in October and this year, obviously we had Matthew. Um, the only thing that really worked against hurricanes this year was there was, there was some subsidence in the Atlantic, there was some sinking air, um, mainly in the mainly in sort of the the tropical Atlantic. You didn't really see too much of that in the Gulf. You saw a little bit of it in, in the Caribbean, um, but aside from that, I mean, the prevailing conditions in the Atlantic were were pretty favorable this year, and and you saw this you saw the systems kind of take advantage of that. Um, I. I yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm probably at the end of the day a little surprised by how, how active it was this hurricane season. Um, I think probably because, I mean, y'all know this, I just felt a little jaded from the past few hurricane seasons. You know, like we hadn't, 
Yeah, 2004, the conditions were <clears throat> pretty ripe in 2004. And that was a weird year. And then last year in 2014, there was just so much wind shear that, you know, uh, we had a few systems, you know, we had Arthur in 2014, which did impact the Carolinas, but, um, but other than that, there wasn't a whole lot in the United States. Yeah, looking at the NOAA's press release for today, uh, they put out their, their list of storms. So they, they got very close to what they had originally forecast. Uh, they had 15 actual storms, named storms. Uh, they were predicting 10 to 16. Hurricanes, seven actual. I think they were predicting four to eight. Major hurricanes were three for the year. And I believe they predicted, uh, quote me if I'm wrong here, two, two to four on the major hurricanes. Uh, category three or higher. Look. But, uh, but that was their, their list for today. And it was the strongest hurricane season since 2012. Uh, so definitely uh, higher than normal. Um, amount or not not by much but uh, above normal um, just a little bit above normal for the year and so yeah, it's um it's been very interesting we started with Alex in January and then we we rolled right in we had this was kind of like the year of the invest so tell us a little bit about that why were there so many invests that just had a hard time developing even with with low shear in warm water temperatures what do you think were some of the factors think that uh, the subsidence was a big factor and you saw that with Hermine for sure. Uh, you know, Hermine was Invest 99L and we joke on, I mean, if you're on Twitter, like it was like, the big running joke this hurricane season was the 99L, just like, the invest that would never end. And like that was the bane of my existence, that storm. I, I was like, is this thing ever going to move inland somewhere or do something? Uh, it just seemed like it went forever. And then the whole post-tropical thing um, afterwards. Uh, but yeah, that one was one that it just, it never got into the Gulf. I mean, right, really it's, it's intensification, it's strengthening. Wasn't until like 12 hours before it made landfall that it really finally found its stride. Um, but I, you know, I remember we, you know, these meetings, these production meetings that we have every day, um, it was a few days before it was going to get over the Bahamas. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, the Bahamas. You know, I'm looking at this thing, I'm like, gosh, this thing just, it's got that look to it, you know, like, you know, it's a big system, it's a sprawling system, it's going to do something, it's just, when is it going to do it? And you, when you look at hurricane uh, kind of formation regions, that Bahamas area is is a worrisome area anytime you get a storm that moves into that region or, or system because of how quickly they can spin up. You know, Hurricane Katrina, you know, went from uh, nothing to a hurricane in a few hours before it hit Florida in 2005. And uh, Andrew spun up really quickly in that area. So I remember going into the, our, our meetings a few days before producers know, hey, look, this is, this could be something here. I mean, this is, has the potential of being something big and it could spin up and catch a lot of people by surprise. But I think what would really a battle and you could see it. I mean, when you do, when you go back and look at the reanalysis and you look at the, um, you look at some of the upper level, um, uh, uh, some of the upper level conditions, you can see this, the sinking, the subsidence um, in, uh, in, in, in the data. And, and it was there. It was definitely, there was a lot of sinking air over the sort of Western Atlantic into the areas where it moved through. Uh, but once it got in the Gulf, it didn't have any of that. And uh, once the kind of shear let up a little bit, it you saw it get going. And four hours over the Gulf, it easily been a Category 2, maybe even more than that. So, um, But, yeah, I mean, I, th I think, you know, that's, that's 
a lot of what we saw with these systems struggling is is sort of struggling with I don't even know if so much dry air. It's just overall the you know overall subsidence in, in parts of the tropical Atlantic. Now earlier on in the now, year, earlier on in the year. Some flooding in Louisiana, and that was due to the warm Gulf waters. I, I looked up in some of the archives. Uh, we got up to, I think, 92 degrees at Clearwater Pier in Tampa Bay, Florida. And some of those spots, I remember it getting up to about 95 degrees, um, where there was actual folks having hyperthermia from being in the warm waters and the heat. Uh, so it was a system yeah. that started out that didn't become tropical that caused a lot of flooding in that area. Would you like to discuss that? Yeah, that was that was an interesting one. Uh, really, kind of a busy three months where you had, um, you know, obviously you had Matthew, uh, and then before that you had Hermine, but then before that in August you had the Louisiana flooding and uh, and yeah, I mean, kind of going back to the the prevailing conditions, the Gulf. You know, being it, it, the way I describe it to folks, it's not that the Gulf was just warm. It was it was like there's not even a close second in terms of the warmth in the Gulf this year. It was crazy how warm the Gulf was. Temperature for the hurricane season was 84 degrees. If you just average it over the Gulf of Mexico, and there's never been a hurricane season on record where we've gotten above 84 degrees in terms of the average warmth for a hurricane season. Uh, and then, uh, Shay, as you pointed out, if you, you look at some of these tide uh, gauges, there's one near Tampa that measured 95 degree water temperatures, like 95 degrees in the water. Uh, and, and this was the weeks prior to, uh, to the Louisiana flooding. And then you look at the, the low temperatures across the Gulf of Mexico. You had um, record high low temperatures for a lot of these cities that were right along the Gulf Coast. And uh, for example, New Orleans, New Orleans had 36 days this summer where their low temperature never dipped below 80 degrees. And that's never happened in, in, in the record books going back to the 40s for New Orleans. Um, you know, the, the, I think the second uh, most that they've had in a, in a summer is like 12 where the temperature never dipped below 80. So it gives you a sense of just a third of their summer, they never got below 80 degrees for, for low temperature. Um, so all of this was sort of leading up to and you had what was a tropical system. It was tropical. It, it had a warmth to its core. Um, it, it didn't have uh, the organization uh, per the Hurricane Center to classify it as a tropical depression um, or a tropical storm, but it didn't need it. And uh, it was basically a stalled tropical depression over Louisiana that brought 30 plus inches of rain and, and it turned out to be, uh, you know, it's going to go down. I think it was $10 billion disaster. So that'll be uh, the costliest disasters to hit the United States in, uh, in the last, uh, in, in this decade at the very least. Talk a little bit, Michael, about kind of the, the coverage of that, because, you know, with it not being a named storm, it seemed like anyone who wasn't in the weather industry really dismissed it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it, it's, it's a, that's, there was a great, uh, there was a great discussion that came out of this about, you know, naming, not naming, giving it a name gives it, uh, gives it more attention, and it should have been named. It's hard to say whether or not, you know, I don't know what you guys think, if it would have, uh, I, I'm sure if it had a name, it would, it would have uh, been given more headlines than it, uh, than it was given. Um, 
But I also understand from a science side is you can't just name anything. You know, there there is a there has to be some sort of metric for naming and uh, classifying a system. And we have, you know, we have definitions um, for that reason. But um, you know, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's hard. It's hard to sell rainfall. Um, and it, rainfall never gets water. Just in general, never gets the attention that it deserves. Um, you know, you guys. In the, you know, one another issue we had this this year was the flooding in in North Carolina. And um, we did we do enough in the media prior to that um, to get the word out? You know, it's you always look back. You go, what could we have done differently? Because I rem on the Weather Channel, I'm, I remember talking about this uh, the potential here for extreme flooding for a solid five days leading up to the to the flooding in Louisiana. We we were looking at you know the raw output from the ECMWF and it was showing 40 inches in some spots. Now originally it was showing it in the in the kind of Florida panhandle area, but you could see that was sort of tracking west and you just you knew somebody was gonna get it, you just didn't know exactly where. Um, so I mean it's it's a good question. I don't think um, I think there, there, you could probably make an argument for it having been classified as a tropical system. Um, I haven't spoke extensively to, to my friends and colleagues at the Hurricane Center about it in terms of why they didn't uh, name it or they didn't classify it, I should say. It's, it, I don't think you could name it, but at least you probably could have got a tropical depression out of it. Um, so, you know, but, but even then, I, I'm not sure you would have had a whole lot of wasn't it didn't have the the cohesive structure to call it a tropical depression until really it was happening like the event was happening um, so I'm not sure what more could have done uh, we could have done in terms of uh, um, Mike one of the anomalies, the anomalies I saw, I saw this, go this go around was was Julia that formed in Northeast Florida and that's what a couple's question I would have for you about the NHC being a little bit conservative on their end for coming up in names of the storms and or I'm sorry uh, giving them a tropical name and Julia seemed to be the anomaly because it formed inland and there was a lot of controversy about that yeah um, yeah you know it's it's interesting too that Julia happened after after um, the Louisiana flooding and I know uh, that internally some folks were asking, well, you know, is, is the Hurricane Center doing this because of what happened in Louisiana? You know, they, they really, having worked down there, my closest friends, is they, they really don't play the politics game. I mean, they really do. Um, uh, when, they, when they come up with the name, naming these things or classifying them, they do it based on what they're seeing from the, from the data and from the observations. Um, you know, when they think there's enough there, they'll 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 give it a name or they or they'll classify it. But you know, it's it's always a frustrating thing. And I and I know um, when you're not when you're not behind the curtain, it's 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 not sometimes not so easy to see. And uh, and so I spent I guess I spent a lot of my time here at the Weather Channel just sort of folks internally. Okay, this is why the Hurricane Center um, isn't doing what they're doing. Um, they're, and they always have a, a, a good reason for um, for what they do. Um, I don't know. I, I think I think these are good questions. Like I think that pe people we should ask why ask this hurricane season was what's the significance of 39 miles per hour? Because that that's the threshold in which you know 
we name something or classify something. I mean, we don't issue, we issue tropical storm warnings for 39 mile per hour winds. Severe thunderstorm warning until winds get to 58 miles per hour. So if you go back and you look at history, and I love history, so I like looking at like where did this all start? Is it kind of started with the Beaufort scale? And I mean, this is, this is what, 150 years ago. And we're just, we just kind of use it. And it, no one really asks, well, why is this magical 34-knot wind? What is, why is it so magical? I mean, even when you look at the amount of potential destruction, it doesn't, you really don't get, in terms of damage, m most of your damage comes at 50-plus miles per hour. Um, you know, so I, I think there, there, you can make a case for naming things until it gets to 50 miles per hour. I mean, do we, be, do we need to be naming... Uh, 39 mile per hour systems like Julia. I don't think Julia ever got above 40 miles per hour in terms of its maximum winds. But we treat it sometimes like we, we treat it the same as we do, um, you know, a 60 mile per hour, 65 or 70 mile per hour tropical storm. Very different things. And, um, you know, so I, I, I hope these are things that people think about when they come up and, and, um, it's it's nice to it's nice when these issues arise because we can talk about it and you know I, that those are these are big changes but like you know we sometimes we have a tendency to just well that's the, it is the way it is and that's you know that's how we're going to do it in the future but um, it's I like to hear people you know talk about these things and, and you know, I don't know I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that uh, I mean, I, I have to. I mean, I, I have been through so I've been through hurricanes, but also some weaker tropical systems and systems that weren't named, and nor'easters and all that kind of crap. And nor'easters can be the, the worst ones out of all of them, as you well know. Uh, but most of the time, when a tropical storm warning is issued, we kind of just are like, eh, whatever, not that big right. of a deal. And unfortunately, people have the same mindset with Category One hurricanes too, which is a whole different topic. Um, but you know, I. I'm interested in, since you've worked at the Hurricane Center before, let's say they want to make a change. Let's say they want to up the criteria. How's that process done? Is there a process in place to do that? Yeah, and those sort of things would have to go through uh, the WMO, the World Meteorological Organization, um, and they will meet periodically through the year. They have a big regional meeting in, in the spring, and it's at the regional meeting in the spring where they decide – whether which storms to retire that sort of thing um, but they they also meet periodically throughout the year and um, and anytime they, they, they have some sort of change um, procedural change that they propose then it has to go through basically the the member countries that are part of their region so their uh, region is, is it's called region four um, but it's the specialized meteorological region for the for that area of the tropics and and they would basically need to have agreement from all of the member countries before change happens. Um, and then there's also a NOAA. Um, <clears throat> they also need to get. They need to have approval through NOAA as well. And they have a they have a meeting every December, uh, a big hurricane meeting with NOAA uh, in the in December to make uh, to make changes. So so it's kind of like Congress a little bit. You know, it's kind of like an act of Congress to get things done. Um, no, it, <clears throat> as I, I love the people down there dearly, but like fight and, I mean, I work down there, not fight, I, it's fighting system. It sounds like, it sounds like 
<laughs> duking it out or something. But but we, we disagree and and argue a lot, and it's good, you know. But uh, like everybody agrees down there, and even even sometimes whether or not to start a store system or not start a system, or you, you know, there's not always a hundred percent agreement. Uh, but you go with the consensus, and you know, like anything. So, uh, so yeah, there's been some heated, some heated battles down there through the years. It's kind of been fun to watch. <laughs> One of the other things. Sorry, Shay. Well, go ahead. Oh no, I was just gas while he was on the topic of of storms that are retired to our viewers. Sometimes the storms that cause widespread damage and destruction are retired, and it's through the the WMO, not the actual National Hurricane Center. Uh, so how, what are the criteria for retiring a named storm? It's kind of subjective. Um, it's just, it needs to be deadly uh, or uh, costly enough to be insensitive to use it in future years. That's, that's basically the, the open-ended um, period. It's not, it's, there, there isn't like a dollar amount or, or a fatality amount. Um, there have been, there have been storms that have been, uh, pretty costly and pretty deadly that they haven't retired. Um, Alberto in 94 was, uh, was one that comes to mind that we had, it was, it was over two dozen people that died in the U.S. from that one, and they didn't retire it. And most recently, um, Isaac in uh, 2012, and that was like a two or three billion dollar disaster in Louisiana, and it, they chose not to retire it. And, you know, you go back and you look at comparable storms like Allison, um, which was a tropical storm, or even some hurricanes that didn't cause as much as many deaths or damage. Uh, but it's up, really up to the, whomever, whatever country is impacted. They can bring if they want to retire it, then they will bring the name uh, to the meeting in the springtime, uh, and they say, "Look, we want to retire this storm." You know, here whomever, um, but it's kind of left up to the discretion of, of the country that's impacted. So I have a, I've pleaded, Michael, uh, with the guys here on our show, and I pleaded on Twitter to no avail. I wanted to get Invest99L. I wanted to get it retired because it just <laughs> it it was, it was too much. It was just way too much, you know. I think oh, we yeah. should. No, I, I, I still <laughs> if you take 99 out, you'll have to add 89 in. Yeah. Oh, that's fine with me. I just, I just wanted to get rid. Anytime I see ninety nine L for now and throughout the rest of my life, I'm gonna be like, nope, it needs to be retired. Yeah. So, what do you guys, what do you guys think about the whole invest thing? Because that, I've been working the Weather Channel since 2012, and I don't, we didn't really, use, I don't think the Weather Channel when I started here was using terminology of invest. I, I mean, do y'all like it? Because it, it was really an internal thing at the Hurricane Center. Uh, that morphed into now sort of the public using it, but sometimes I wonder if it just confuses people more than it helps. I think it kind of came along as the whole social media thing. I mean, you yeah. probably would never would have heard about it unless you're a, a hurricane junkie before social media came around and hashtags came around and all that stuff. Um, from a communication standpoint, being a broadcaster who, who has to choose whether I'm going to use it or not, I have kind of used it, but also not used it, just depending on uh, the storm. I've Sometimes I just use the probabilities and say, hey, here's an area disturbed weather the Hurricane Center is monitoring. Other times I'll say, this is called invest and then kind of explain what it is, which is great for a calm weather day when you need to fill some time and you're like, let me explain all this to you. 
Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I can see it going both ways. I think we've kind of, uh, kind of made our bed and uh, going to have to live with it now because everyone kind of expects it and people have picked up the invest names. But Yeah, I think once yeah. the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's hard to put it back. <laughs> yeah, Michael, I think, you, I think Weather Channel was one of the first to start discussing invest. And I mean, I think it's great. You know, I think as, as people want to learn more about the heart, you know, the tropics and they want to learn more about weather that you can sort of throw new terms out every so often. And, and then they kind of learn more and more as time goes on. Uh, I think it's helpful for a lot of folks to, to know that there's an area to be watched, especially if it pops up right off the coastline. If it's an invest, it means, Hey, heads, you know, heads up, look over here. Um, it's not something that's going to be, um, nothing to worry about right now, but at least it's an area to watch. And, and that kind of puts it into people's minds that maybe there's, you know, it's more awareness about whether uh, that's ongoing in the tropics. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, I've gone back and forth on whether, you know, how, how I feel about it. And part of me feels like we have too many, too many layers to this onion. You know, we got the invest, we have tropical pressure, we have tropical storm, we have hurricane. And, you know, we really, when you're below, kind of going back to this whole idea about, you know, name storm, uh, when you're below 50 miles per hour, it's almost always going to be rainfall. That's the most threatening hazard from the system, from the tropical system. And so it's like, why do then do we have all of these like layers? And then we, we spend all this time explaining what an invest is when we could forecast or talking about the impacts and, so I've thought about that, but on the other hand, I mean, to your point, Shay, is that you, uh, it gives you an opportunity to talk about something that you might otherwise dismiss or say, oh, it's just, it's not anything. It's not a name storm. It's not a, it's not a tropical depression. And you actually, you have some sort of, you know, identifier to, to identify it. So I can see the argument both ways. I want to transition us just a little bit, if that's all right, and we'll start talking about Matthew and some of the storm surge stuff that was associated with that, because Matthew, without a doubt, was probably our biggest storm of the year, and one that had quite an interesting forecast between the, the curve and the, the parallel track. Um, I'd like to talk about kind of if you have any thoughts of why the storm stayed just offshore as it moved almost all the way up the Florida coastline. Oh, gosh. Uh, it's, yeah, I think, I think, I mean, yeah, a little bit, a little bit, it's just sort of, it's, it's a lot of it is luck. Um, you know, I don't know. Um, it's, it, it was one of these, one of these tracks that it, it could have easily have wobbled west and it could have, the, the eye wall could have, it, you know, it, it did eventually make a landfall, but over Florida, it could have wobbled and, and struck Florida uh, head on. And we, we, you know, when you have storms moving along a coast or up a coast, and you, and you see it almost in every co sort of paralleling coastal storm. Um, Arthur in, in 2014, most recent example where you see it, it, it sort of like due to frictional you know effects, it sort of stair steps its way along the coast, and uh, and so the, the friction has a tendency to to help the storm stay close enough, but not get all the way in if. The prevailing uh, synoptic pattern has, doesn't have some sort of you know big strong ridge that forces it in, and uh, and obviously that it that wasn't the case with uh, with Matthew. Talk about a storm that yeah it was it was awful and it was you know number of people that died and the flooding was was tremendous and um, and and even the, the coastal impacts in Florida were 
gosh, if that storm had been 30 miles, it would have been so much different for Florida. You, you know, the eye of a category uh, strong three hurricane um, right at the coast, and it, particularly with the storm surge of it. Um, you know, that's why we, we I, you know, I, I go back and I think, okay, and I do this uh, after every storm, is what could I have done differently? Because I don't think that personally, I don't think that I did enough in terms of, of the flooding, the inland flooding from this. But when you go back and I think about, okay, at this point in the storm's history, you know, when you look at this category four, it's right, out, right along the Florida coast, catastrophic storm surge. And, and we know that historically storm surge has produced 40, 49% of fatalities in hurricanes are from storm surge. And you look at something that has the potential of being a one in 500 year storm surge event for, for this part of the coast. So we hit a lot on storm surge uh, right when it was riding the Florida coast and, and we probably didn't hit as much on the, on the, on the potential for flooding down the line. Uh, but I mean, with it being so close to the coast, I'm not sure, you know, if it had if it had wobbled 30 miles to the west and had moved inland and you had a 12-foot storm surge into Jacksonville or even into you know St. Simons or Jekyll Island then uh it would have been a big it would be a it'd be a big story so one um, uh, in some sense like that part of the coast lucked out I mean even though people who lost their homes don't feel like they lucked out but um but it certainly could have been I mean just just a little bit of a wobble and you, you can't you can't predict those things. I mean, people were trying to microanalyze the the forecast, but you can't. I mean, you really can't predict that. Um, it could have gone either way. I remember seeing it was kind of an incredible moment seeing a flash flood warning issued for storm surge, or I think it was even a flash flood emergency was issued for storm surge. One of the first times I've ever seen that be issued. I don't. I don't remember, where, Ricky. Where was that? Uh, it was up in Jacksonville. I forget exactly what time. It was one of the coastal islands uh, where people were hesitant to evacuate. I think they put out a flash flood emergency as some of the surge was rushing in uh, when Matthew was passing by. I was definitely um, the storm surge, and uh, I remember. You know, it's not only do you. Am I on air? You know, six or eight hours or more. You know, covering the storm, but then. Off air, I'm trying to coordinate with our crews and our management in terms of where do we position people along the coast. And we had you know, a day or two before Matthew was supposed to get to the Jacksonville area, and we had our people on, Jacks, on the beach in Jacksonville. And I called our, I called our, uh, our leadership, our, basically our management here at the Weather Channel. I said, we, we can't have people on the beach. It's not... You know, I don't care if they're in a if they're in a hotel that's you know they're 12 stories off the ground. Not a safe place. It's not an example to set. And you know, in credit to the Weather Channel, they didn't they didn't ask. They said, okay, we're we're going to pull them. And they um, we had we had a few folks in Jacks on Jacks Beach, and they pulled them the day before the storm hit. I'm not sure our crews were were really happy about that because they wanted to be in the thick of it, but it was the it was definitely the right move. Um, you know, because even, you know, if you're on a barrier island, and I've done a few of these storm surge um, surveys immediately following the storm events, and you guys might have seen a lot of this too, is you have these, you know, hotels that then turn into accordions, and um, sand gives way, and the hotel sinks in, and 
it's just being on a barrier island in a hurricane uh, with the potential of a 12-foot storm surge is not, it's not okay. Um, it's not protected. Wave action does a lot, and a lot of people forget about that. Um, my fiance was down there too, uh, Kate Parker, and uh, she was covering the storm, and I told her, I was like, you can't be on the beach. So, so I was dealing with, you know, having to do the on-air stuff and then trying to, like, get our people off the beach. You know, I, I just told everybody, get them off the beach. They don't need to be on the beach. Uh, put them inland. They can go in after. Uh, they may not get the crazy great shots, but it's the, it's the right move. Here's, Peter's got something up on screen here, uh, and it's the track mm. of Matthew. And um, I remember seeing some of the buoy readings off of Cape Canaveral, and they, I think they were upwards of 24 to 30 feet, even though the surge only was about, I don't even know what it would have ended up being along Florida, maybe eight feet. Uh, I know it was a little bit higher as it got up into Georgia and northern parts, even up into Savannah, and it was less by the time it got here near Charleston. Uh, but talk a little bit about storm surge and your, and your expertise on it. The NHC came out with a new product. How did that do with what the actual storm surge um, came, came out as? I thought it was. I, I thought it was really. Uh, it was great. And um, you know, like with anything, there 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 are a few things. I'm sure after the season, they'll want to uh, they'll want to fine tune and and that sort of thing. But overall, I thought, you know, and I don't know how you guys feel because y'all were using it as much as as much as I was. Um, but I thought it was a great addition that we had station map um, or the the potential storm surge flood map. Uh, and that was one that the development, I led the development of that when I was at the Hurricane Center. Uh, and then also the uh, the new storm surge, pr prototype storm surge watches and warnings. And, and I also worked on that when I was down there. Um, and I think just having those two products really put more of a focus on storm surge, um, where you had very storm surge specific products. You had graphics, you had... Uh, you know, you had an interface where people could go in and they could zoom on their zoom in on the area. Um, the only thing that, that concerns me a little bit, and I, you know, just sort of watching how people use the, the new products is, um, is there is some change with with the forecast uh, to the potential flooding, and I think when people see, you know, the forecast change from nine feet to six feet or something like that, you know, within the the ranges that they have that they think that the threat has subsided and it's not always the case. And so, you know, I think some, sometimes for this one, I think some people thought maybe the threat had gone down, was just as high, but the, but the, but the, the storm was forecast to be a little bit weaker. Um, but I, I thought overall, I thought having, having uh, storm storm specific products that I could talk to on air was, was great. I, I, I liked the addition of the new products. This was probably the first season I was able to. This was probably the first season I was able to recently and see how many learned this season was, uh, and I think this is probably and you can clarify this for me how the products are put out, but the hurricane local statements that came out of some of the offices were different than what mm -hmm. some of the storm surge maps were showing. And is it correct in saying that the storm surge maps are kind of a worst case ninety percent probability? and the local statements are more of like a, a forecast for most probable? Uh, no, Ricky, they actually should be, the, they should be consistent. So if they're not consistent then that, you know, and I wasn't, I was looking at uh, some of the local statements, admittedly, you know, uh, given my expertise on storm surge, I'm not necessarily driving down and looking at their, what their forecast is, you know, I'm looking, making, kind of making my own forecast. 
Um, no, they should they should be consistent. And um, I'd have to go back, and I, I did notice that I have to go back and look at that um, forecast for storm surge. It it really needs to be a reasonable worst case because that's what emergency managers are planning for. That's what if you you know if you're looking at whether or not you should evacuate. That's that reasonable worst case is what you need to be preparing for. Um, so storms are a little bit different. I, I don't, you know, you don't want to put out a forecast that, you know, there's there's a 50% chance that you're going to get higher storm surge than that forecast because with storm surge, it's that's life threatening and um, it, you're not talking about inches of rain or a few degrees. It's um, it's, it, it's a pretty big deal. I think the, um, so that's usually how we forecast. That's typically how we forecast the surge. I think the most striking moment was uh, during Hermine when we had some storm surge warnings issued for the Chesapeake Bay uh, with the Hurricane Center forecasting potentially a couple feet of water in Hampton Roads while the local weather service office was uh, not even forecasting more than about a foot or so of the storm surge. So it was just from someone who probably looks at more products than the public does, it was something that was slightly confusing to me. But uh, hey, no, as long as the message gets, gets across somehow, I suppose. And I don't, I, you know, I need to be careful what I say because I don't want it to come across as critical of the, of the weather service offices because they do awesome, they do a really great job uh, across the board. But I do think that there is, and, and I found this when I was at the Hurricane Center, there is a challenge with some offices and, 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 uh, and some people within the offices that maybe with storm surge, it's, it's less familiar to them. Um, so they're not, they're not looking at these uh, products or making these forecasts a lot and and then when they have to do it it, it can get a little confusing and it, it can get um, it, it, it can be complicated too uh, by the by the different ways that they measure storm surge you know some of them use different uh, vertical datums uh, different baselines and yes is different by the from the local offices but in many cases it's that they're, they're using a different baseline but the forecasts are the same but it's con it's confusing the inconsistency is is confusing to the public um, personally I really don't like that the weather service some of the weather service office offices choose to still use uh, mean low or low water in in their public products uh, when it comes to storm surge I think from a public standpoint some of the offices do it because they have a lot of you know people who are boaters and they're used to seeing things relative to mean low or low water but in in storm events it's really confusing when it's in a public product land-based public product and um, it it gives this sense that the storm surge is going to be a lot uh, higher than it than it is and that was a big problem with with Sandy is you know the Mean low or low water storm surge forecast was like 14 feet or something. Uh, but in reality, the worst that, that they saw in Sandy on Staten Island was around nine feet. Um, so, we, you know, and I've talked to the Weather Service about this over the years, and but it's hard to get the entire um, agency to come together and make, and make the change. But uh, that's something I would like to see. We still have a few, th you know, we still have some issues that we have to work through when it comes to uh, communicating storm surge. Yeah, Michael, I got something up on screen here. This is this is the extra tropical storm surge that um, I, I've used a lot here along the coastline, and it, it does pretty good. It does okay. I think it's GFS based, but it says right here. I mean, they actually have a note that says uh, the mean low water level. I'm sorry, lower low water under datum uh, is in the left menu. But when you 
if you go to that one, it says it's the old datum. So they're actually referring back to mean sea level uh, for the correct, you know, output for it. So that's um that's kind of reassuring. But that's a, that's a decent product that they use, and and you can sort of uh, play with this one, go around the country and um, or different parts, at least the East Coast and uh, Alaska and the Gulf, and and yeah, it's just it, one of those products out there. Yeah, and it's interesting, Shay, because there are there are a lot of those kind of floating around, and um, you know, I can't. I think it was Hermine that that there was there were there was some confusion with people using that, and looking at the Hurricane Center's forecast and trying to make their own forecast. Um, you know, the extra tropical, it's a good. It's a, the extra tropical product's a great product, especially for extra tropical storms. But you know, it 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 has its limitations. It's it's. You know, and if you don't know the limitations, you don't, it's deterministic based, which I'm not a huge fan of. Consider uh, ensembles or different, uh, different scenarios. It, uh, the basins that are built within it are, uh, tend to be uh, coarser. Uh, the, the resolution isn't as good as, as they are with the uh, tropical um, surge model. And, uh, and there's some other issues in, in, within the bays and inlets that, that I found uh, that can make the storm surge higher. And then there's, then there's the datum issue. If you don't know, you know, if you're not familiar with your datum or what the datums mean, um, you know, certain parts of the coastlines have seawalls. Like uh, if you go to the battery and you look at the battery, even if you are trying to figure out how much flooding there's going to be in the battery and you're looking above mean high or high water where there's a, uh, you know, there's effectively there's a seawall there. So it's just it, it can get it can get kind of tricky. It's um, uh, if if you're looking at that, so that's why I, that's why I like the inundation product, the flood product, because it is probabilistic based. Uh, it it is predicting storm surge flooding. It's predicting the the wetting and drying inland uh, that you not don't necessarily get from the uh, extra tropical model. So there are definitely benefits. I would. I always steer people to the NHC products for hurricanes over over the extra tropical product. But for the advanced user, it is it's it's good. And I and I will go and look at uh, at it, especially for a bigger system. It's really good for uh, systems that sort of resemble storms. Yeah. After the show, I need to. Uh, yeah, after the show, I need to. Learning stuff. Extra tropical. Learning stuff. I use that a lot when winter season comes around, all that kind of stuff. So interesting. Uh, yeah. There. Well, one thing I know we're getting, it's almost 9.15, so I don't know how long we want to go here, Scotty and everybody else. Uh, but I, want, I wanted to hit on the rapidly intensifying storms this year. You know, we saw Hermine rapidly strengthen. We saw Otto rapidly strengthen. And that was probably one of the most remarkable storms, I think, to rapidly strengthen this year. Uh, any factors that really went into those that stood out to you? You know, rap well, rapid intensification is probably – if you had to list the the most difficult things to forecast in the tropics, rapid intensification might be at the top. It's hard to say. Um, you know, if you, you you look at things like the the ships models, the the ships uh, has uh, rapid intensification parameters and predictors, and uh, it it can be it can be pretty good. I um, you know I, I remember with Matthew there was some criticism after Matthew that. The Hurricane Center and the Weather Service hadn't, it was by some major uh, media outlets that the Hurricane Center hadn't forecast the rapid intensification of Matthew, but the job and, and, uh, of, of forecasting it, even though they didn't get the 
um, the rapid intensification part, um, the, a lot of the ship's models were indicating that there was the potential for it to, to rapidly strengthen. Um, you know, auto is one of those things. Um, it's really interesting when you look at the global models because uh, the resolution of the model really matters in terms of the the rapid growth of, of these of these systems. So, um, you know, it's it's tough to say. I mean, every every storm is a little bit different, but you know, um, you know, it's it's it usually an atmospheric thing. Um, so, I mean, sometimes it can be an oceanic thing. But it, it, more recent research is really interesting. We go into these uh, off season and the, um, some of the hurricane meetings that really on what's happening at the uh, sort of at the top of the troposphere, the, the tropopause level, and uh, what, what, how that plays into rapid, rapid intensification. Because for so many years we looked at, we were looking at the ocean, we're like, it's got to be something in the ocean, it's got to be something at the air-sea interface that's doing it. Um, looking, going back to the atmosphere and, uh, you know, sometimes you can get these sort of PV filaments that come in and uh, and help to help spin up the the storm. So, so that's kind of it's kind of new. It's emerging sort of new emerging research. But I, I it's really cool. Like uh, I'm kind of looking forward to this year seeing what's what's being what's being done. Yeah, I've, I've always uh, I, I'd like to look yeah. more into that. I've always been kind of stuck at the the sea surface temperatures myself. Uh, looking at the thickness of the heat potential for tropical cyclones and especially with the the Caribbean being so yeah. warm for Matthew. It was just, it was juicy. I think they dropped the sun and it was, it was at what, 84, 85 degrees down to about 450 feet. So you're yeah. talking about the entire photic zone on top of the water at a very deep layer of warm water so that it, it, any tropical cyclones that spin up won't cool the water. You know, the, the cool water below won't make it to the top. So that and was, there, um, and there, there certainly may, I, and there's probably is still a lot there in terms of, uh, the air sea interface in the ocean and the, and the ocean heat content. You look at storms like Haiyan. I mean, there's definitely a play with with ocean heat content in, in a lot of these instances. So, um, you know, I, I still think though, that's, I still think the whole right there at the air sea interface, that's, that's where you're probably ultimately gonna make your money as a researcher in, in figuring out the whole intensity puzzle. Um, if we can get down there and figure out what's happening, um, you know, we just need more, we need more OBS down at the, on the ocean, you know, like <laughs> I put a, I put a hundred thousand observations in, in on the ocean surface if I could, um, but we just don't have it, you know. Jeez, I mean, look at the array they have in the Pacific for tracking El Nino. I mean, they have uh, gliders under the water that just go back and forth and get yeah. temperature measures. I mean, it's amazing what they have over there. I wish they had something like that in the Atlantic Basin as well. For sure, yeah, yeah, but no, it's it's a it's a cool area of research for sure. Well, Michael, a um, couple more questions if we can keep you, uh, and then we'll kind of wrap up. Uh, one thing, uh, one thing I was wanting to talk about is uh, Hurricane Hermine uh, impacted Florida. It was the first time Florida had been hit, and I think it was like ten, maybe eleven years. So. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that, how you guys were preparing there at the Weather Channel, uh, because, you know, Florida, a lot of people move there. You know, a lot of people may even not even know what a hurricane's like. So uh, yeah. talk to us about um, your preparation with that uh, there at the Weather Channel this year. It was 10 years and uh, 10 months, I believe, uh, until event, you know, since before uh, Hermine made landfall. So that was a, a record drought for Florida. 
the previous drought was something like six years, so it, it eclipsed the previous hurricane drought in Florida by five years. It's crazy. Um, so yeah, we, we really did. We talked a lot about, you know, uh, I don't know how much you guys watch the Weather Channel, but when, when, there's, when there are no active storms, we, we talk a lot about, especially climatology and history and, uh, and especially the whole complacency issue. And, you know, is the complacency that it's been 10 years since Florida's even had a hurricane. This is a state that landfall every other year. Um, is the complacency issue going to be a, a player for the next hurricane? And because it feels like in some sense it's morphed into this sense of denial, like we just don't, we don't get hurricanes in Florida. And uh, we obviously know that's not true. Uh, but I, I, think, I think overall um, the response was really good in Florida. Um, and yeah, I, talk, I've, I talked to some of the social scientists. I, talk, I actually talked to them throughout the hurricane season. And it was interesting to hear their perspective, um, you know, especially some of these people like Jay Baker at Florida State, who's been, he's been doing evacuation studies for five, you know, like 40, 35 years. And, um, you know, he was saying that uh, it's actually, his studies have shown that people are more complacent when they get brushed by a hurricane. So they've had recent brushes, um, but they don't really get the brunt of a hurricane. They think that, oh, I'm, I'm okay. I'm safe where I am. I don't need to evacuate next time. But if you get a long stretch of time, you know, since the last people have moved to, to, to the, or since the last hurricane or, or, or a long period of time where you have a bunch of new residents, is they're not, they're not familiar with hurricanes. They're, hurricanes are so foreign to them that when they see one coming, they're like, I'm just going to get the heck out of here. Uh, so they don't, they don't dawdle and they, they actually take it pretty seriously. And, uh, and there was a study that, that, um, that Jay did with, um, Florida Division of Emergency Management going into the hurricane season that actually showed that. And uh, this was a study, it was, it was an internal study, but they shared it with me in May. And it was kind of interesting to see that. I, I kind of anecdotally, at least, and I have to talk, I haven't spoken to him um, since Hermine, but anecdotally, it seemed that the response was pretty good. Um, so I'd be interested to see what the compliance rate was for the evacuations. Um, but I thought overall people, people heeded the warnings and listened and, and did what they should have done. Um, Hermine was a little, was a little different. I mean, I think we knew, um, with Hermine that it, even though it was a category one and with a category one, you don't, you may not focus as much on, on the wind aspect and you maybe focus more on the water and the, the storm surge and the rainfall, but in Tallahassee, because it had been so long since they've had a big wind event and there's so many, uh, pine trees everywhere you knew that power outages from the wind were going to be a big part of the story. And so I remember we hit on that a lot, and it turned out that um, the power outages was, was a huge part of the story uh, there in Tallahassee. And then, of course, the, the storm surge in Cedar Key. Record for the 102-year uh, record of the tide gauge, six-foot storm surge is the highest on record. So, so pretty, I mean, overall, pretty impressive storm. Um, you know, I'm, just, I'm glad it didn't spend more time over water because it could have been, definitely could have been stronger. Right. Yeah. Another 24, 48 hours could have been devastating. Uh, we learned a lot of that in South Carolina. We saw definitely saw our share of tropical systems this year. And you mentioned a couple of things uh, with, with the winds, you know, I think people were genuinely uh, surprised and we have a lot of people living here along the South Carolina coast that are not from here, never been through a hurricane before. There's a lot, there's some panicking people out uh, trying to figure out what to do and when to evacuate. And they, they open up the roads, our I-26, they reversed the lanes three days early, which I thought was smart for, I won't get into all that, but uh, it gave 
people plenty of time to get out of town. Um, yeah. But people were most surprised here by the strength of wraparound winds and then also uh, a, a harsh reminder of just how serious the flooding can get in northern South Carolina up in the southeast North Carolina. So, um, you, you know, it, it just goes to show when you don't have a system for a very long time that people tend to forget how serious these, these things can be, even at a Category 1. Yeah, I was, it's funny, I was going back and, and uh, you know, we've had, we had five named storms uh, make landfall in the U.S. this year, which was a, it was a few weeks ago when I realized that. And, I, and even I was like, is that right? Five named storms. So when you look at the Hurricane Center's, um, their preliminary, uh, you know, map for the season, and they actually had to make a little inset for the Carolinas because y'all had basically every, every storm that impacted the U.S., got at least close to y'all, you know? Uh, so uh, I thought that was, that was, that was interesting, but yeah, I, I heard, you know, I heard after, um, after it was all kind of said and done in, in the Carolinas that some of the people were, uh, yeah, there you go. That was interesting. Yeah. But some of the people had complained about the, uh, the evacuation and that they did it too early and that they weren't letting people into areas that weren't impacted. So I did hear a little, a little criticism of that. Um, I agree with you. I mean, I don't think that you can – letting people know early, getting them out early, I don't think there's any harm in doing that if you know you're going to evacuate them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it really was a, a sobering reminder of the freshwater um, – water flooding and, and what it can do especially when you have a frontal system or some sort of synoptic feature that it's uh, that, a, that a, a tropical system is, is coming into contact with is is the amount of rain that it could bring um, going back and looking at the sort of um, antecedent soil moisture and rainfall and I mean yeah had a, Carolina's had a heck of a lot of rain uh, you had rain from Hermine a few systems that brought rain, especially in late September, and it was just one of those things that it was just sitting there, you know. It was, it was sort of ready to ready to boil, and uh, and, and Matthew uh, said it over. But um, but yeah, I mean, I I think you know, looking at those pictures from Carolinas, even if you you told me, okay, you're gonna have 18 inches or 12 plus inches of rain in, in parts of the North Carolina, I as by the pictures that, that came out of the Carolinas. Yeah, I've got several, Bonnie, Colin, um, Julia, well, Julia brushed us, and then there was one that hung around for, I, I want to say it was Carl that just would not go away. <laughs> it became a depression, yeah. and then it became a, not even an invest, it was just a, a low, and it just kept yeah. swinging back around and around and, and gyrating in and out of the coastline. <laughs> it's like, good Lord. <laughs> Michael, hey, I, I, I joke with my colleagues here. I was like, "This is the season where this is the season of the storm that never ends." I mean, every storm that we had, it was like, "My goodness, did the thing just seem like it took forever?" And I don't know if it was—I don't know if it just felt that way. Like, if we have because we have social media now that we start talking about things earlier and earlier, and we have invests and because, uh, like with Hermine, the first time I talked about Hermine on air, this the seventeenth uh, as an invest through what it was like September 6th it was almost full three weeks that I was talking about it extensively on air but it was seemed like every system was that way um, you know it's just 
It was an interesting season. We, we, got, we also had um, Nicole. This is, <laughs> names kind of run together. Uh, Nicole that moved right over um, Bermuda as a Cat 3. Came and hit Bermuda in two years, which is uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a heck of a season. That, that kind of pig, piggybacks me off the last two questions. So I'll kind of put them together since uh, we're running on time. Um, the North Carolina governor uh, made some statements after Matthew uh, talking about. Uh, I'm just going to paraphrase basically, where we as a society, uh, when we look at hurricanes, focus solely on the wind and not everything not the water storm surge flooding things like that uh, i'd like to have your comment on that and then also uh, i guess my last question for you is this is the first hurricane season that i can remember uh, that we were full on social media twitter facebook uh things like that how do you think the, i'm very interested in social science how do you think that played in a factor into this season communicating uh did we do good did we do bad uh and then kind of talking about going off of what the governor said, uh, do we focus sometimes too much on the wind and not enough on the, on the water aspect? It's funny. I did a weather geeks after Matthew and which by the way, I heard you guys were geek of the week a few weeks ago. <laughs> yes. Yes. You're very appreciative of that. I was like the whole group. And I was talking to the producers cause they do, they do weather geeks on Wednesday. Um, nights here so they actually they were taping it before when I came in here I was talking to the producers before I came in um, but yeah now I was doing a weather geeks after Matthew and um, first time it's funny because I, I mean I may have heard the comments but it just didn't register it was the first time I heard uh, they played some of the governor's comments uh, about uh, the Saffir Simpson scale and, and it was and I in to your, I, I can't remember exactly what was said but I remember it being it felt really harsh and critical, especially on the hurricane center. Like it was the hurricane center's fault somehow. Um, this, the Saffir Simpson scale. I mean, I feel like we have this debate almost every year now where, you know, what do we do? We need another scale. We need a more holistic scale. Um, a decade ago, I can remember thinking to myself, yeah, we need a, we need a, we need a scale that encompasses everything. And, uh, and I've learned in the past 10 years that like scale that boils every hazard down into a number. And it's just not possible. I've even gone back and forth in, in, um, with, uh, with some of our higher-ups here about whether or not we should even show category on our graphics in terms of what it is. But it's so just etched in uh, the category. People, the first thing people know is what is it? Is it a one? Is it a two? Um, but I, I think we do need to work on calling it the Saffir Simpson Hurricane Wind Scale. Uh, it is a wind-specific scale. It's not uh, with trying to, in terms of um, giving people a sense of how bad <clears throat> the potential wind damage could be if that sort of wind is is realized. But um, I, I think <clears throat> we're doing the right thing. I think breaking out the hazards individually and and talking about every hazard individually is. I personally think it's the best way to go. I do think, though, that you can prioritize those hazards. Uh, you know, if, if you know that flooding is going to be the, the, the primary threat for a certain area, then you, you talk about that first. Um, I guess this, this then kind of piggybacks or dovetails into, the, into your question about social media is I, th I think our attention span has gotten really short. And our attention span has gotten really short 
social media. And people don't want to read more than 140 characters. They kind of like the picture version. TV, when people come back to TV, because people do come back to TV for big events, like we had weather channel this hurricane season, especially during Matthew. So when they come back to TV for the big events, that they, they're probably only getting about 15, 30, five seconds of what you say. So if you don't show them what's really important within that first 45 seconds, or it's, or it's going to get uh, overshadowed by everything else that you're showing them in that first 15 or 30 seconds. Because our producers, they want to see first, very first thing they want to see is the, co the sat we call it the sat info, but basically the information, how strong is the storm and the cone, where is it going? really tell you a whole lot I mean they they don't really provide the, the picture that you need to know like what are the hazards and how bad is it going to be um, at, and we're doing that every hour uh, and they're not getting the rainfall forecast and they're not getting the storm surge forecast um, missing a lot there um, so I, I just think from a from a social standpoint from a you know, from a from an enterprise standpoint, from from us as meteorologists and and weather communicators, we're gonna have to kind of think about that a little bit because hurricanes are really hazard. It's not it's not like well, there is a tornado. It's coming at you. You know, it's not it's not that simple. Not that I'm saying that that's how tornadoes are. You know, I know there's a lot more to to tornadoes than that, but um, it takes a little more it or explanation. And um, and it's not necessarily the, the immediacy. Uh, you don't you don't have necessarily the pictures that to go along with it, too. And um, you know we're working on ways of of helping to visualize that better. I think there's graphics, there's three dimensional graphics and things like that that really help to to visualize it. But things like rainfall are I think are going to be a, ch a continuing challenge because you can't you, we just don't have the pre precision to say this town is going to flood from rainfall and. You know, we not only people uh, were saying, well, we need to come up with a different we need to come up with a different hurricane scale afterwards. But they were saying, well, well, we should have we should have evacuated for the rainfall. I, we can't I mean, unless you have a coherent plan in place before the hurricane season. You can't just go start evacuating people on the fly. You know, that gets really dangerous. It's the same idea of you know evacuating people ahead of a tornado. Um, yeah, I guess my thoughts on, on those things. My last question, maybe um, this may be a little controversial. I don't know. Uh, in the Charlotte media market, uh, we had a discussion about uh, Deere and Matthew using the cone of uncertainty. I know you guys show it sometimes on the Weather Channel. Uh, what's your thoughts on using that? Because their, their information of not showing it is because people fixate their eyes on the center of that thinking that's where the hurricane's going to hit whereas actually the the impacts are much more broader so uh what, what's your thoughts on the cone of uncertainty uh well i under i i understand people uh understand the not wanting to show the cone in certain instances and circumstances um make it a habit when i show the cone to explain what it is um you're doing I don't think you're doing the viewer um, uh, any sort of favors by just showing a cone without the context uh, is to say this is the cone this is where the center 
in most cases, the center falls somewhere within this cone, but one out of every three forecasts, the center can come out of the cone, and the cone does not tell you where the hazards from the hurricane, rainfall can extend well outside of the cone. And so I, I'm, I guess it's a little different here at the Weather Channel because I have, I have or six minute blocks or chunks of time where I'm just talking. And um, in the local market, that during a big event, but you're not maybe given that amount of time <clears throat> to really a lot. And if you're if you have rainfall forecast graphics and that sort of thing, I have no problem with you not showing the cone. And as long as you're talking about the forecast and the hazards that are going to be impacting your community, if you don't think that the cone helps tell your story, then don't show the cone. Um, it, it's, it is hard though because I think your producers put a lot of pressure um, to show the cone because that's what people want to see. We, we want to see the forecast cone. And, and so I guess in that way, in that sense, I can empathize with, uh, with the local broadcasters that just go up to your <clears throat> producer or your news director and say, hey, I'm, not, I'm not showing the cone, and they're going to push back on you. So um, I think the best thing you can do if you're going to show it is to, is to give it some context. But, but especially as a storm gets closer in, you know, it's, it's it, a bigger storm that's close in, it's going to – the impacts are going to be outside of the cone, so it's like, why, you even, why do you even bother show the cone? Right. I think you per answered that perfectly. Scott, I've got one final Go question as we wrap up. Uh, I just wanted to know, what is the one tropical thing that stood out to you this year for 2016? Whether it be the Atlantic Basin one? or any other basin. Um... Well, I think in a in a general sense, uh, the uh, the fact that the Atlantic and the and the Eastern Pacific had above average hurricane seasons. There was a cool stat, and I don't remember it now because I I think I tweeted it out a while back. But there's only been like one or two other seasons where we we've had above average in terms of the ACE hurricane seasons in both the Atlantic and the Eastern Pacific. Because uh, the East Pack was until July. Like, we didn't have a name, I don't, we didn't have our first name storm until July in the Eastern Pacific. And then all of a sudden it just went bonkers. And uh, it didn't quite qualify as a hyperactive hurricane season, but it was, it was up there. Uh, it was one of the more active seasons that we've had in the Eastern Pacific. And, and then you, uh, you, the active east, the active Atlantic. So, so it was a little unusual because you have a little, you have a break in one basin. You don't, you usually don't get both basins that are that are really busy. But, uh, but this year was sort of an exception. So we had, um, we had a lot of storms to to track. You know, I think that's the that's probably the 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 one big thing is just, there were just a lot of storms. There were Hawaii was threatened by storms. Hawaii was hit by storms. We had landfalls in Hawaii. Um, stuff in the western pacific um so it, it was just it was a it was a busy hurricane season um yeah Maranti was a especially large storm but yeah it, that was surprised too to see that many systems especially coming from el nino into into neutral phase and, and it just sort of i mean it was really surprising to see that many systems really start cranking out of the eastern pacific especially just uh north of the cooler waters 
Yeah, we put we we put so much stock in El Nino, La Nina, but I mean the subtropical uh, waters in the East Pack were 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 still really warm. Um, the La Nina it tried and tried, but it it didn't really seem to have much of a huge impact on the East Pack. All right, I lied. One final question. Right, one final question. Um, have you looked into the Gozar products yet, and what what we may have the ability to get next year? And we've talked about the Global Lightning Mapper and stuff like that. Do you see any significant advancements in uh, hurricane forecasting coming from that or monitoring? Uh, I think I think honestly, the the big enhancement in terms of hurricanes uh, um, resolution is 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 huge. I mean, we have. You know, just just being able to get, um, uh, you know, in, in some cases one minute or even thirty second imagery, um, and and also the not just the temporal resolution but the spatial resolution as well. Fair off the top of my head, how like in in terms of percentage, you know, how many more observations we're getting? We're getting a lot a lot more, and so you're putting all of those cloud observations into the global model. So I. I'm hoping that you'll, you're going to see an improvement in the global models um, because you just have more the ocean uh, from the satellite because it, it you know really matters over the um, over the open ocean. We just don't have the land-based OBS. It, I think I think that's probably going to be the big win from from Gozar is, is the additional uh, the higher resolution and additional data that's going to go into the models and and uh, and help with the forecasts and and also just help us see things like sometimes you know. One of the tricks when I used to work at the Hurricane Center I would do is, and I still do it to this day, is when you look at a visible loop and you're trying to figure out where the center is of a, of a uh, system, if you speed up the loop, like you put it in hyper mode. And so you can see the low level, you know, you're looking for the difference between low level and high, low level and high level clouds. And, uh, you know, like with the GOES-15 satellite, sometimes you can see it, sometimes you can't. But with GOES-R is you're going to be able to, much better see the difference between the high level and the low level clouds. Um, so I think that's going to help us for invest in systems that aren't quite there yet. And you go, okay, does it have a does it have a defined circulation circulation? I, I think that's all of that's going to be really helpful. All right, well, uh, Michael, we don't want to keep you any longer. I know you've had a long day, but we really do appreciate you coming on and. Uh, Maybe we can continue this conversation maybe early or, or uh, late next spring and maybe have you back on and, and talk about what uh, we may anticipate for the uh, 2017 hurricane season. Yeah, Scotty, this has been, this has been awesome, man. I'm glad, I'm glad I could come on. I'm glad you invited me. It's an honor to be on the show. I've seen a lot of the folks that have been on here, and, uh, and I've been told by everybody, like, they're just an awesome group of people. And I was like, yeah, they are awesome. People. Well, so. we hope we hope we haven't disappointed. We uh, we really do appreciate you uh, taking some time out to visit with us tonight, and uh, uh, you've been a, a great guest, and, and we look forward to having you back. We would like uh, to you to promote uh, your social media outlets, how our uh, followers and listeners uh, who are going to listen on the podcast can uh, get in touch with you if they ever want to. Yes, yes, we, I, I will do that, and uh, you know, yeah, you know, y'all know where to find me on, in terms of Facebook. I'm on Michael. My Facebook feed is in, and Twitter handles are Michael R. Lowry, L O W R Y. It's kind of annoying that I have to put the R in there, but Michael Lowry was already taken. You know, when I set up my Twitter account, so it is what it is. And we can catch <laughs> you on the Weather Channel when. 
And you can catch me on the Weather Channel. Uh, well, now I'm going into my off season, so not <laughs> regularly anymore. I was going to say, yeah, I know you're going into the off season, but sometimes you guests appear yeah. on the uh, Wonderground Weather Underground show. Weather um, Underground a lot, right? which airs from six to eight p.m. Eastern time. Um, uh, so it's a Weather Underground is a great show. It, it really is. I love the folks there. It's really kind of weather geeky stuff, and and we have a lot of fun on that show. So I've been on that a lot this year. Um, and, uh, and, and in the off season, probably find me a weather underground. So, um, so start there, but, uh, I'll be back. I'll be back before you know it. <laughs> my, every year, my, my, my on air schedule seems to change some mornings and wake up with Al and the morning shows. And so this year I was doing more than the afternoons and evenings. So, um, can we also so just I, say how nice the wallpaper is behind him there on that glass or the, the decoration <laughs> of the glass? We always have some guests best possible backgrounds. It's, uh, yeah, weather, weather centric. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, thank you very much for coming on. Thank y'all. Have a good night. And yeah, you too, Michael. Uh, we, we appreciate Michael coming on. Next week we have Dr. Marshall Shepard coming on. Uh, Going to kind of piggyback off our conversation tonight and talk about the uh, dangers of flooding. And it seems like uh, we have uh, Dr. Shepard on um, every December. So, uh, we always kind of do a recap in, in the year's weather as well with him. So we look forward to having uh, Marshall back on with us next week. So uh, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up here tonight. Uh, thank you for watching the Carolina Weather Group. Uh, make sure to uh, download the uh, up, uh, updated podcast. I think James will have that up uh, probably in the next day or two. And as well, check out uh, the Carolina Weather Group uh, uh, website where uh, – a lot of us kind of do blogs throughout the uh, throughout the week. So we look forward to uh, seeing you next week. And again, a big thank you to Michael Lowry coming on tonight uh, to join us here on the Carolina Weather Group. So stay uh, safe out there. Uh, enjoy some of the quiet weather. Uh, I know it's been pretty active here. Uh, just want to pass along our thoughts and prayers for those uh, who are in the Gatlinburg, Tennessee area. Uh, we're definitely thinking about you guys and praying for you and all those who are affected by uh, the tornadoes here in the past couple of days. So uh, until next week, have a great uh, week, and uh, we'll see you then.